Hello. This is Pastor Titus Bilo uh, with Pastor Gunnar Liederman. Hi. Uh, I am in Helenville, and Gunnar is down in Rockwall, Texas, just outside of Dallas. And we are back with part two of First Thessalonians, which begins with chapter two, verse one, and goes through verse 12. So it doesn't quite do the whole chapter, but they have it divided thematically in the first and second Thessalonians people Bible commentary, which is what we are working through. This is our second episode on this series. And without any further ado, I'm going to get right into it. So in my copy, this is on page 18 and I'm going to read verses one and two, and then it gets into a section of commentary and then Gunnar and I will give our thoughts, just things that come to mind briefly, and then we'll keep moving on to the next couple of verses, read the commentary, and give some of our comments. So I'll begin. This uh, section, the heading for it, is called The Work of a Faithful Pastor. Chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God who dared to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. And the commentary. Paul now turns to a rather lengthy description of the faithful ministry he had carried on with the help of God in Thessalonica. Note how Paul gives God the credit for everything he accomplished as a pastor. But why does the apostle spend 12 verses talking about himself? Surely not to beat his own drum. Two other reasons readily suggest themselves. One is to encourage the persecuted Thessalonians. If God had kept Paul faithful amid trials, he could do the same for them. A second reason becomes obvious as we read these verses. Apparently, there were some people, maybe the persecutors, who were suggesting that Paul's ministry was self-serving. There seems to have been implications that, like many unscrupulous traveling teachers of the day, Paul had come to Thessalonica only long enough to make a name for himself and to get whatever money he could out of the people, and then had hurried on to the next city. It was true that Paul had spent only a few weeks among the Thessalonians, but he sets the record straight about his reasons for coming and about his love for them as a pastor. He appeals to their awareness that his visit to them was not a failure. Just prior to coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had suffered and been insulted in Philippi. See Acts 16. They were arrested, dragged before the authorities in the public marketplace, stripped of their clothes, and beaten with a whip that made deep cuts in their flesh. Then they were fastened by the feet in stocks and locked in a cell deep in the city prison. The insult of which Paul speaks was that in spite of their rights as Roman citizens, they had been beaten publicly without a trial. After such experiences, who would have blamed Paul if he had quit preaching entirely, or at least for a little while? This is especially true when in Thessalonica he ran into some immediate and bitter opposition again. But Paul did not quit. He did not even hold back a little bit. 
Instead, he appeals to the Thessalonians' memory of how he dared to tell them Christ's gospel in spite of the threat of bodily harm that stared him in the face so soon again after leaving Philippi. Every faithful pastor needs this kind of boldness. God must still supply it. Without such courage, a preacher undermines his own message. A pastor cannot shrink back from any threats of harm or ridicule that try to silence his pro proclaiming the good news about Christ our Savior. A faithful pastor is bold in the face of opposition so that he doesn't deny Christ. I'll stop there. This is the uh, end of the section of the commentary and turn it over to Gunnar for some first thoughts on those verses. Again, when you read in Acts, you find uh, Paul was only able to be in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. So we, we presume not even a month, right? Was he able to be there? And that that was the intense that was the intensity uh, of the persecution against him and so yeah like it said you know this section paul's goal with this section isn't to say you know how great he is for the sake of that but his goal with this section is to say really this is how it works uh, the opposition of the world to our gospel uh, that we go and share and that, you know, all those who came to faith put their hope in and were then also to be sharing and to put their foundation on and to meet regularly about. And uh, they'll face opposition too, so it would be an encouragement to them. And two, thinking back, this it mirrors what, you know, even all the way back to like, Cain and Abel. I mean, and Cain brought his offering in faith, or Abel brought his offering in faith. Cain brought it without faith, and then was mad and ends up killing Abel. You know, and you, and you just see it wind down through all the different prophets and uh, the opposition against, you know, then you get way down to guys like, you know, uh, Elijah, right, uh, flees for his life and uh, he ends up in that cave, right? He's in a cave and he's like, you know, God, I've been very bold for your name. And he actually repeats the exact same uh, statement twice to God. I've been really bold for your name, but this pointless God, like, uh, you know, king and queen are out to kill me. There's a price on my head. Nobody even believes this message anyways. What is the point? And it, uh, you know, it may be easy to just read through that and not stop to think, but God's response to Elijah, like, there's not even a, oh man, that's kind of tough, you know, that maybe we would put in today. But he literally just says, okay, I need you to go do like five things. <laughs> like he doesn't, he doesn't even give... Elijah, a moment to sit there and uh, have any Wallow. kind of, yeah, he's just like, get after it, man. You got some work to do. The same, you know, Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah. That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, such stuff. Lamentation. Yeah, literally, <laughs> I'm going to write a book about lamenting and being sad, right, for all the things that I've had to endure. And 
and so today then uh, all the things that that we endure in you know in this country uh, sometimes you know there have been eras where it's been perhaps a you know the resistance against Christianity has been more passive in the sense of Christianity was boiled down to a sense of morality that perhaps was accepted amongst a good number of people. And so it wasn't an outright persecution. Instead, it was an emptying of Jesus from the gospel. And instead, it was, you know, just this morality of life like, oh, we'll just be good people. And essentially, you had, you know, like a Pharisaic attitude where now it's in some places, maybe lots of places, it just kind of depends. Uh, there is a more prevalent uh, rejection of Christianity in this is section two, certainly for pastors to continue to be bold and talk about things everybody's talking about anyways. Uh, but put those things into the light, right? The light of God's word with grace and truth, with law and gospel. Uh, to bring things out of the darkness and put them into the light. Because people want to know anyways. Like they want you to bring up what they're thinking about, what they're talking about at work or school uh, or in their social groups or what they're seeing on any variety of screens. Or, um, And I think a lot about, uh, you know, the kids that are in school. And uh, again, every school's different things like that but uh, there certainly seem to be some places where uh, there is intense persecution against uh, Christians and for Paul to say I was only able to be somewhere for three weeks <laughs> yeah. you know uh, but I continue to write letters right like you know they kicked me off of this campus but man I'm sure I don't even know if it's called tweeting anymore but I'm sending messages or I'm you know, sending snaps or whatever the TikTok and things, you know, to people because like the word has to continue to get out there. Yeah, what you're like just in this text where it talks about my visit to you was not a failure. And you're really getting out what is a failure in ministry? So yeah, he was there for three weeks because of fierce persecution then had to leave. And so they're thinking that was a failure. Like he was there for three weeks, then he had to leave. Like Oh, this mission plant, it failed. And which sometimes happens. You know, like we've had that where we've had uh, churches we tried to start and then we had to shut that mission down. And you think, oh, we failed. Did we? Not according to Paul's definition, which he says here is, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel. Did you dare to preach the gospel during that time? However long it was, then you have not failed. And like you said, sometimes... Um, yeah, it maybe looks different than a generation ago where morally Christianity was more accepted in this country. And we were all willing to say, like, yeah, we're Christians. However, you know, like it was maybe surface deep um, in a lot of cases where like it was white okay to go to walls. church. Yep, whitewashed walls. You're able to say, like, yep, I'm a Christian. I go on Sunday. Um, but then you go home and you live the opposite way. And you don't actually believe what is being said you go to church for other reasons because it looked good well now it doesn't look good so are you still going to church 
And in one sense, you know, is one time more of a failure than the other. Honestly, on the outside, we can make conclusions. But on the inside, sometimes the stronger the persecution, the better the church, <laughs> the better the Christian. Um, and scripture talks about that all the time, how persecution and trial produce perseverance and endurance and growth and hope um, as you refine what do we actually believe in. And it, really what that's causing is, do we believe in Jesus or not? Is he worth our time or not? Um, and you compare that against the persecution you're going in. And those who come through that, I'm not saying that's not difficult. Those who come through that always come through stronger. And I think, yeah, Paul's just showing here. He's challenging that from the very beginning. I was hurt in Philippi. I was hurt here. But hey, we did not fail. And he's going to talk about that as we keep going. Like, um, yes, this is the reason we can we can still be super proud. It's not about selfish pride. It's about the power of God, despite hardship, my weakness, your weakness, our failures. God does not fail. He does not fail. The gospel will always prevail. So that's exciting. It is. No, I agree. Yeah. And just again, the we get super obsessed with um, like success. And um, like you said, very simply, success. the American definition of success, yeah, like numbers or yeah. growth in that way. Yeah, and what you produce, but God measures success or really faithfulness is often what he calls it. Faithfulness or success for a Christian is simply sharing the message because God's the one that makes the word either create faith or strengthen faith in someone. So we don't actually produce or grow someone's faith, the word does. So if you don't share the word, nothing's going to happen. If you share the word, something's going to happen uh, by the grace, power, right, of God. So, yeah. Yeah, and he's going to zoom into that. Just so I make crystal clear, too. Like, he says, you know, we dare to tell you this gospel. Again, what is that? this gospel? It should be a no-brainer to us, but Gunnar and I always say, like, you can't take it for granted um, because that's the point. This gospel is simply Jesus Christ crucified and risen for you. That's, there is a guy who wasn't just a guy. It was also God wrapped in human flesh, came to this earth to suffer and die for our sins. And he promised that if that would happen to him, it was meant to happen. <laughs> and three days later, he would rise. And if that happened, it would prove the fact that he is who he says he is, and anyone who believes in him will also rise. That was Paul's message. He was going throughout the world telling everybody about this crazy thing that happened that's real, <laughs> that blows your mind, and it changes our existence. And that's the gospel. And as long as that is communicated, whether it's done with eloquent, eloquent words like whether this pastor is super good, has the gift of, um, you know, super good eloquence, or he is really good at talking to people, or your church is like growing by leaps and bounds, and there's thousands of people coming in. 
or you're meeting in a house and there's four of you, as long as that clear message about Jesus is being preached, that's a success in God's book, which is awesome. And that gets me to the, the one thought when we first read this and it's pointing out only three weeks. I'm like, man, just imagine if I was sent somewhere and I only had three weeks to start a church. Right. Wow. Well, one, it would definitely get me out there. You know, like I got three weeks. I'm going to maximize every minute. Yeah. But then I might get done and be like, wow, I don't think I got anything like accomplish anything. But then Paul, like, I bet you he was just super excited because like three weeks he's kicked out and then he keeps hearing about Thessalonica. Like, holy cow, I was here for three weeks and look what God did in this place. Was that me? No, it was it was the word. It had to be the word. I was only there for three weeks. And I was like, no human could ever do anything with three weeks. Like I can. That's awesome. Absolutely. <clears throat> yep. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking like he's, you know, as he's writing to them, uh, he was south of them, but uh, and Corinth is south of them. But uh, like in his letter to the Corinthians, it was exactly what you said, right? It's First Corinthians 15 is that section that, yeah, if, if Jesus, you know, since the gospel's real, you know, since he lived and died and rose, this is what everything hinges on. And so if you can get that clear message across, even if it's just three weeks, uh, God's going to do something with that. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll read the next, uh, next verses. So these are verses three and four. He wrote, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. So that's the word now, the commentary. Many traveling teachers in the Roman Empire had reputations. Some claimed to be experts in what they taught, while in reality, they themselves hadn't really mastered their subjects, such as math or science. Consequently, what they taught was full of errors. Some teachers had purely selfish motives for teaching. Instead of sharing their knowledge for the benefit of others, they were concerned only how they could benefit themselves. Some used tricks or of oratory, or magical tricks done by sleight of hand or illusions, which gave the appearance of strength or wisdom, all to hide their errors or to benefit themselves. Any comparison between himself and such teachers, Paul flatly rejects. The apostle states that everything he taught was centered in the gospel and was spoken by him exactly the way God had directed. Paul had not become an apostle by his own choosing. No, Christ had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and ended his self-chosen career as a persecutor of Christians. Jesus had called him to the unlikely position of a preacher of the gospel. Even then, Paul had not struck out on his own to preach about Christ as he, Paul, might have thought best. 
Instead, for several years, the Lord himself taught Paul the gospel, which he was to preach to others. I want you to know, brothers, Paul wrote to the Galatians, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up, but when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man. That's Galatians chapter 1, verses 11, 15, and 16. Paul took this matter seriously. He never departed from what God entrusted to him just to say something pleasing to his hearers. Thus, he never became entangled in errors, impure motives, or attempts to trick people. Rather, he spoke only that which pleased God, who tests our hearts. Paul knew that receiving a trust from God required faithfulness. In God's court, even the motives of one's heart will be examined in regard to one's faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, Paul expresses these truths. So that men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. A second characteristic of a faithful pastor, then, is that he looks on his work as a sacred trust. It is not a work which he carries out in a way which pleases men, but in a way which is God-pleasing, a way in which even the motives hidden in his heart will be found out by God to be genuine. And that's the commentary. That's good. Um, each of these verses kind of build on each other, so um, some of our comments will echo in each section. But some unique things in these two verses. Uh, first, he just points out that when we speak the gospel, we need to be very careful not to make it gimmicky or to connect it too close to um, something else that makes it more appealing. Um, which is tricky because many of you, like us, you know, have been part of evangelism events, or we'll call them even pre-evangelism events, outreach events, where you kind of make it gimmicky in this sense, like you're there with something else, but you are hoping to have the chance to preach the gospel. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Because he does talk about, you know, being kind to all people. And throughout scripture, it talks about loving your enemies and being, you know, open to interacting with the community and being for them, just to be for them. Because that's what Christians do. You love them. And obviously, if you love them and they ask you, why do you love me? Well, because Jesus loved me. That's not a bait and switch. It's not unfair. It's just the honest character of a Christian. What he's describing here is more if I would schmooze the gospel even more be like you know this gospel is good jesus christ died and rose for you and what's even better is if you believe it you're gonna make a million dollars like if you really believe that god's gonna so bless you in this way that's a gimmick that's a lie that's pushing scripture beyond to make it more appealing 
And that is not true. And so he's saying here, like, this is not springing from error or impure motives. I'm not doing this to, like, gather more money from you or to be popular or to just start a lot of churches because I have a huge ego and I want to have campuses throughout the world. Um, on the contrary, God told me to do this. He told me to come with the gospel and preach it to you. I do it for him and him alone. That's just the way it is. And he says, you know, ultimately, if you don't believe me, that's, that's your problem. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for God. And God tests my heart. It's just powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And to go off that last thought is and when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment and gives two, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Uh, but the order is important. And even in the broader Ten Commandments, the first ones are about God, and then it gets into your neighbor, other people. And so the check for yourself, check for pastor or Christian, uh, anytime you're hearing some kind of a spiritual message or something about God or things like that, is again, is this is this good with God? Like is what is what I'm thinking, saying, doing in the moment with my life. You know, is it good with God first? Because if it's good with God, great. You know, like that's the number one check, which again is really hard because you you're walking with people and you know, you're running into people all the time and you've got family relationships and friend relationships and work relationships and school relationships and, uh, you know, government relationships. And there's all these, all these different layers that are pulling on you and influencing you and the devil's influencing you. And to take all of those thoughts captive and to first go, Okay, like, is this, is God good with this? And if he is, then you can have confidence and peace, like the confidence yeah. to speak and act. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of, there's freedom uh, when you recognize that I am accountable to one being first. Again, not that you're not, Accountable to people too, because you love people and there's tact and timing and things like that as well. Uh, there's a lot of freedom to know. First and foremost, I need to have in mind the things of God, as opposed to being bound to the opinions of multitudes of people uh, that also change all the time. Like there's no freedom in that. There's that's where you get so there's so much stress and anxiety in people's lives because uh, they're just bouncing between different opinions and and things like that. And uh, there's a popular term now this like virtue signaling or things like that. And lots of people want to be for the right cause or or different things. And 
at the end of the day, those people are simply chasing righteousness. Like they're chasing being good or feeling good about how they're living, all that kind of stuff. And God's message is, um, I'm going to give that to you, <laughs> right? And so now forward my cause and you have it, right? And you have it. So that's the check uh, for righteousness. So no, I, I love it. I Like you said early on, just constantly asking ourselves, are we doing this to please God or to please men? Uh, it's just a good sobering question. And I know I've struggled with trying to please people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. As a pastor, it's very hard not to. Every time you preach, every time you go into a visit, um, you want people to like you. That's a very natural reaction. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, you cannot do it for that reason. Or you will mess it up. You will twist it. You will not say pieces of God's word because you don't want people to be mad at you. Um, don't be a pastor if you don't like confrontation. Let's put it that way. Although I've never liked confrontation. I'm a pastor. So God will help you through that too. But just be prepared for it, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, be prepared for it and constantly wrestle with the, with the challenge of like, yeah, God, or people may not like me, but God knows my heart. And if it's imperfect, even if I'm struggling, God knows my heart. He knows why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, he's going to help me through this. And he's going to be with me. And that gives great confidence. And Paul just shows like he he really gets that and goes into situations and is not afraid no matter what will happen because God sent him. He's bringing God's word and nothing else. And so he can leave with full confidence that he did the Lord's work. And God will bless it. All right. Let's go to the next section. Um, so this is verses 5, 6, and 7. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. And the commentary. If you had a mother who was always ready to serve your happiness, often at the expense of what she might have wanted for herself, you can't help speaking of her in terms of glowing praise. Such was the unselfish kind of pastor Paul sought to be in his service to the Thessalonians. We all know what flattery is, insincere praise. Usually it flows from, flows from selfishness because the one who flatters is not speaking for the other person's good, but is trying to manipulate him. Since Paul was concerned for the Thessalonians' souls, flattery was something he completely disavowed. Moreover, his concern for their souls removed any selfishness in the form of greed. Perhaps some of the Thessalonians did have more money, and comforts than Paul did. But Paul was an envious, since they could not look into his heart to examine the truth of this claim. Paul calls on God as his witness that he never masked any feeling of greed. Paul often received praise from the people to whom he preached the gospel. 
But the apostle declares he didn't go looking for such praise from the Thessalonians or anyone else. He did not do his mission work just so people would praise him. Since Paul was an apostle, and since Silas and Timothy were his companions on the mission journey, they would have had every right to expect the Thessalonians to supply them with basic needs such as housing, food, and clothing. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1-14, Paul spells out in detail the right of a teacher of God's word to expect support from those who are taught. But as a matter of principle, Paul himself usually refused to take any support from these new congregations he founded. He did not want to give anyone the opportunity to accuse him of doing the work for the money. One notable exception to this rule was the Philippian congregation. Instead of being a burden to them, Paul describes himself as a gentle nursing mother. It would be absurd for a mother to demand that her little baby support her. No, a mother who is loving and kind will do exactly the opposite. She will do everything her child's care demands, feeding, changing clothes, protecting, helping the child in its every need. Perhaps the most vivid example of a mother's care is when she holds a baby gently in her arms and nourishes it at her breast. Paul wants the Thessalonians to recall him as having been such a mother to them. Here is another picture of the ideal Christian pastor. He unselfishly cares for the people in his congregation without any thought of what he can get out of them. He does not manipulate people with flattery nor envy those members who live better than he, nor does he work for just the praise it brings him. Instead, he is one whose unselfishness is very similar to that of a gentle mother nursing her beloved child at her breast. So far, the commentary. It's a wonderful picture of a mom and certainly uh, just like with fathers too, which will come up, but you know, our earthly moms and dads, and for those of us that are moms and dads, uh, we have lots of things that we regret uh, doing. But when you take the uh, the purity of the of his picture and the unselfish, uh, genuine love of of a mom, you know who. Just filled with compliments and uh, real love for her kid or kiddos, and and this is Paul to them. So he, on the one hand, uh, is firm and resolute in what he's going to preach about the gospel and unshaking, much like a mom too, who you know you get into that mama bear mode. And uh, you, you know, everybody backs up because it's time for mom to get after it to protect her kiddos. Um, but also the mom can instantly switch to being tender and compassionate and genuine uh, for her kids and knows them arguably better than anyone else and knows what they need to hear, how they need to hear it, not for selfishness sake, uh, but to know that's what the her kids need, uh, really need, not what they want, but what they need, uh, to know that they are loved, safe, cared for, at peace, confident, all these kinds of things. And uh, Paul and this brings out that with, you know, like it would be ridiculous to think of a mom demanding from her baby something 
Um, I just hadn't thought about that. So I thought the commentary brought that out well. Like, why does he use this image here? Um, just to not only talk about that compassion, but also a mom's job is to care for her child. It's not vice versa. You don't have the kid to care for the mom. I mean, eventually that might happen. Um, but here in this analogy, he's like, no, we were gentle and we had to nurse you um, because you didn't have any good motivation to do anything. And so we weren't going to demand that you give us money or all this other stuff because you had no gospel to motivate that. We were a mother nursing you to life. You were very, just at the very beginning. I had three weeks. Um, it's just, Good. Yeah, you had to be taught things, things that you didn't know, things that you weren't able to do, things that you may have tried to do, but yeah, it all needed to be given to you uh, in the kindest possible way and also in the fullest nourishing way. At the beginning there, too, where it talks about, you know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed as our witness. Um, just as a pastor, what good does flattery do? Um, temporarily, it may avoid a situation. Let's just say I'm you know, going to visit someone who hasn't been in church for a long time. Um, yeah, it's very tempting to use flattery. Like, yeah, I know, you know, you're, you're working hard and you got things going on and and by saying this right now, I'm not saying that like you can't have reasons where it's been hard and you can't relate to that because we all do. We all make excuses. However, I can't just sit there and compliment them on the fact that they haven't been in church in five years. That's, that's a problem. And it doesn't do me any good to just say like, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, you prayed to God in your deer stand and you prayed to God. In this situation, and I still think about God. And great. You still need to be in church. You still need to hear God's word. You need to be part of the body. You need to grow. And if we as pastors are just as individuals, we too much into flattery and we're afraid to say some of the hard things. It doesn't do anybody any good. Um, can God use that? Absolutely. But my point is, like, if we're pulling punches because we're afraid of the praise of men disappearing, they won't like us as much anymore. That's what Paul's pointing out here. Like, we're here to save souls. It's good to remember that ultimate perspective. It's not about having an easy life here. It's not about having just smooth relationships and never going through tension. No, it's about saving souls. And to do that, we need to cut deeply with the law sometimes and say like, no, you're in trouble so that you can soothe with the gospel and that builds faith. So it's a definitely a tricky thing to wrap your head around, but it's not about flattery, not about putting on a mask. It's just preaching the word law and gospel, just as God says, and don't get yourself in the way. Amen. All right, I'll read the yeah, go for it. next verses. This is verses 8 and 9. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now the commentary. Twice within one verse, Paul unashamedly expresses his deep love for the Thessalonians. These were not just words. They were words based on deeds. Paul's ministry was never just a nine-to-five job for him. He threw his whole heart and life into it. He loved the Thessalonians so dearly that he couldn't stop with just sharing the gospel with them. He had to share his life as well. Paul points to his untiring work for the benefit as proof of his love. By day, he would preach the gospel to any and all who would listen. He would instruct, comfort, and encourage individuals or small groups day by day. Then late into the night, he would work with his hands at a trade to make enough money to supply his and his companions' basic needs. Most likely, he worked at tent making, which was a trade he had learned as a boy. Thus, Paul's life was a toil and hardship. That is, it was a life of hard work over long hours, under some very tiring and trying circumstances. Every pastor's love for his people will be evident in the work he does for them. Does a depressed individual need encouragement in the early morning? Does a small group need the information class to be conducted at a special time to meet their schedule? Does a call come just before supper for an emergency baptism or at midnight for a person who needs strengthening in the last hour of her life? Does a teenager or an engaged couple need counseling? By his unselfish life of service, the faithful pastor answers, I love you so much that I am delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but my life as well, because you have become so dear to me. That's the commentary. Paul in this section, drawing from his love and then points to the actions that prove that. Toil and hardship, night and day. Um, and then he says, so we wouldn't be a burden to anyone. So part of that is they're preaching throughout the day or working throughout the day so that they can preach all night or vice versa. So um, in other places, it talks about Paul being a tent maker, working with some of the local people. These were some of the skills he had. He would do that to make some money so that he would not have to ask anybody for money to support the ministry. And so here he's saying like, yeah, I'm doing one or the other 24 hours, you know, pretty much and get a little sleep in here and there, but doing whatever it takes so that we can keep doing our mission. We can keep preaching the gospel to you no matter what. And just know that the why would I do that? unless I actually cared about you. You know, if I, if I didn't care about you, I'm not making money on this. I'm not being treated kindly. I'm being hurt physically, emotionally, and being attacked, you know, by people left and right. Why would I do that? And here he says twice, because I love you so much. Because I care about your souls. Every hard word spoken, every preaching of the gospel, everything I did among you, was all because I love you like Christ loves you and I want you to be in heaven with me. That's it. That's all I get out of this. 
and that's that's enough. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and it brings to mind, and this happens often uh, throughout Scripture and what God calls us to do. Often he gives us things that we have to, a phrase we use is hold things in tension. Like we hold two things that seem opposite or two things that are just different and God wants us to balance them, be in the middle. And so like Paul had three options, maybe, if you think of it that way. In Thessalonica, he could have just gone to Thessalonica and just made tents. Like, <clears throat> gospel's been a rough go. I'm just going to make tents. Like, I know how to make them. I can get by, maybe even get really good at making tents. I don't know. Or he could have gotten there and been like, man, I'm tired of trying to, like, support myself with making tents. I'm just going to preach the gospel and then be like, Okay, guys, I just preached the gospel to you. Where's my dinner? Where's my room? And, uh, <clears throat> but he doesn't. He's right in the middle and he's like, okay, I love these people. And so I'm going to do both. I'm going to do both things. That's going to be way harder to do both things. I'm going to preach all day long and, you know, and meet people where they're at. And then at night, I'm going to stay up late making tents just so I can get up tomorrow and be able to preach the gospel and uh, not take anything away from these people, but only give to them. Uh, simply give and give and give. Uh, and that, again, that motivation for it, the source of it, and the content of all of that giving is all God, right? So... God filled Paul up uh, with love and forgiveness and grace. And so as Paul shares that, you're never going to get to a point where you run out of the need for sharing God's word. You're never going to run out of Jesus' forgiveness. You're never going to run into a situation where you're like, well, well, there's no more people who need to hear about Jesus and there's no more forgiveness to give out. Like <laughs> That need will always be there and there's always going to be enough. And even more uh, when it all comes from God. And so Paul Paul saw one option in Thessalonica, and that was to share the gospel and to work, because that would be what was best uh, for these people and for God. So, yeah, it's amazing. You just know that his appreciation for the grace he's been given and other people coming to faith is so huge. It has to be. Uh, and that is God-given. God-given that a human can endure so much. And on top of that, like, this is them trying to work with wounds healing. Just thinking about, like, the persecution from Philippi. He was just there. He was beaten, hurt. And that he's still working through that. So think about your aches and pains and every other excuse, you know, like, we can think of. Like, and Paul's just a man. So when we read this, it's not like, you know, Paul's not God. He's not Jesus. But he's able to do all of this by the power of the gospel. So that's just a testimony to how much God can do in you. Um, yeah, by faith, as he connects you to the power source of himself. It's not really Paul, then. It's Christ working through him. But it's just really cool to see him as an example of a, of a pastor who 
and really bring it. Yeah. It's humbling. It like, is. I'm definitely, like the title of this section, he's an untiring worker. I'm definitely a tired worker right. a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. So, God give me that endurance and that ability to really, you know, do those calls and have the patience and not get angry or frustrated after having a conversation for the 15th time or, you know, coming home and taking care of my kids and my family. No, like it's another opportunity to preach the gospel and I'm going to find my strength and my energy from him. Amen. Yeah. All right. Um, we got one more section here under part two, verses 10, 11, and 12. I'm up for reading this one, right? Right. Checking. All right. So the verses, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And the commentary. A teacher in a classroom can easily fall into the mistake of treating a class of 25 students as one mass instead of as 25 individuals. But a father who really cares about his children will never treat them all the same. He will train each one according to his or her unique abilities and personality. Just as Paul had compared his care for the people to that of a loving mother, he now likens himself and his co-workers to a father. Part of a father's work of training each child is to set a pattern for his children to follow. This Paul sought to do when he, as a father, dealt with each of the Thessalonians. The words holy righteous and blameless all say the same thing about Paul's conduct and yet each says it with a slightly different emphasis holy refers to the standard that God gives us in his law as a guide of what is right righteous refers to the approval God gives in this instance the declaration that Paul's dealing with each of the Thessalonians was acceptable to God blameless refers to the inability of anyone to bring a charge against Paul's conduct does Paul mean by this claim, which he calls on both the Thessalonians and God to witness, that he lived a perfect life without any sin while he was in Thessalonica? Not at all. As Paul makes clear in other passages, such as Romans chapter 7, where he speaks of his sad failures in Christian living because of his sinful nature. Paul is only emphasizing that in his training them as a father, he has followed a pattern set by God himself. This is how Paul dealt with them as his children. What he did follows. The three verbs Paul uses to describe what he did as a father are, again, very similar to one another in thought, but slightly different in emphasis. Remember that this letter is being written to people who were suffering a persecution that had begun already when Paul was in Thessalonica. Then each of these three terms will take on a very concrete meaning. The Thessalonians needed encouragement in their severe suffering and trials. They needed comfort when in their trying situation they suffered the added loss of a loved one by death. A special uplifting, cheering word was needed by each of them to continue living as God's dear children. In persecution, they might be tempted to turn away from such a God-pleasing life, 
because of the trouble it brought them. Paul urged them to keep in mind the glorious, eternal home awaiting them beyond this brief but difficult pilgrimage. The final characteristic of a faithful pastor, then, is the way he cares for each soul entrusted to him in the same way as a father watches over each one of his children. He counsels and encourages each member according to his personal spiritual situation. What a marvelous pastor Paul must have been. But he was the first to declare that the glory must all be God's. Only by the Almighty strength was Paul able to serve so faithfully in the ministry. May God bless all our churches with such pastors who, by God's help, carry out their work boldly, faithfully, unselfishly, untiringly, and in a fatherly manner. So far, our commentary. Now, oh. G, tell us how to be a blameless father. That's right. Uh, yeah, puts Paul's example in. It goes back to that beginning part where you think about <clears throat> where you think about success, and you know you think about it's easy to fall into the trap of success with lots of people or numbers or you know, the quickest or most efficient way to do something. Like, ah, oh, it'll be most efficient if I give. I come up with some some general things I mean some true things but some general things and then just say it over and over and over again uh, and I'll reach lots of people I won't have to spend as much time and like more of the like more of the gospel will get out more people will believe and uh, yeah there are times where <clears throat> you know it's good to have some general solid truths or whatever some message like that but Paul's getting that being a, a pastor to people uh, shepherd. A lot of times people ask me, what do you want me to call you? I'm going to call you my pastor, preacher, reverend, you know, things like that. And uh, uh, so, yeah, those are all words that people use. <clears throat> I said, I, uh, I prefer, or if you want to do something, you can call me pastor, which means a shepherd. Uh, I tell people to I tell people too a lot of times I'm fine with you just calling me Gunner, because um, I say because I can tell by your you know, so much communication isn't just in the words but I can tell by your voice your inflection your posture whatever our history like you can call me lots of different names and uh, even if it's a good name I can tell if you mean it or not and uh, so I'm happy even if you don't give me a title and you just call me Gunner. Um, because you, you know that uh, I will work hard to look at you as an individual. And that, again, is why I like the term pastor, because it means shepherd. Like the shepherd is is there for each one of his sheep, each unique sheep uh, that's going to have a different personality, different needs. And it's taken that individual time with people and forgetting the ideas of success or mass, you know, whatever, or words like efficiency or whatever, all those kinds of things. And just going, what really matters is in this moment, in time, in history, geographically, whatever, I'm here with you and 
I'm going to work hard to listen and see what's weighing you down. And then I'm going to give you individual encouragement, comfort, and urging, right? And uh, that gift of time, which too, when people are like, oh yeah, pastor, like the Bible talks about faithfulness a lot. Like what does faithfulness mean? How do you, how would you define it? I just tell people it's time. In my opinion, how it's time. How much time are you going to give to something that's being faithful? Like, you know, if you're faithful to a hobby and you probably spend a few hours a week on that thing. Uh, if you don't spend any time on that hobby, it's not a hobby, right? Or it's not even a thing because you're not being faithful to it. So if you're being faithful as a Christian, well, that's time in God's word individually and also in a group setting because Jesus is your best friend and he's your source for strength and love. Uh, and it's also your faithfulness in living it, right? Like Paul gets that, he gets it both, being filled up and fed by God and also then pouring out and living uh, as a Christian. No, I like that. I've never, I've never thought that through, like faithful equals time. I like that. And just as I play that out in my head, as someone who looks to balance life, you know, here it's talking like, yeah, he gave everything. Paul's not married and he doesn't have kids. Right. So then the question is, okay, if he did have a wife and he did have kids, how would he be faithful to all of them? Now, obviously he didn't, but that's me. Right. You got to ask Peter. Yeah, right. Um, but again, like when you say faithfulness equals time, even if you just think about it that way, it means I spend time with my wife. It means I spend time with my kids. And it means I spend time with my congregation. Mm -hmm. so yes will that be a balancing act absolutely faithful with my time though means i'm investing in, in them not in sin not in lazy habits or other things that don't need to be there uh, doesn't mean you don't need to be um, self-aware of when you need sleep and need to go you know, like gunner and go on a hunting trip to be out in you know solitude and spend some time harvesting and getting food for your family but also time to process and to grow individually but yeah no I, I appreciate that and just in here I love being a dad um, I definitely don't do it perfectly and I was blessed with a father who loved me and cared for me and I know Gunnar was too his dad is awesome calls me Philemon speaking of names and uh, right. having a, a good dad is such a blessing. And for those of you that didn't have that, I'm I'm sorry. But I also know that you do have a heavenly father who will make it right and is making it right right now. So when we think of this father, think of a good father, the father that you'd ideally want to have, someone who's comforting, encouraging. And then this is urging, which is what every good father should do. You are there for your kids. You will always be there to support them, even when they fail and pick them up but you're also going to urge them to live differently you're going to urge them to strive to be something um here it's all being striving to be something in the grace that you have been given and here it says like it calls you into his kingdom and glory like 
this is God's design for you. Like, this is where he wants you to go. Don't settle for this junk, this crap that is so easy to get caught up in. Drive for that. You have been called into God's kingdom. You're his soldier. You know, embrace that. Be proud of it. Uh, and, you know, he'll go on and talk about sufferings and other things. But here it's just so cool. Like, I mean, look back at my time with you guys. I came to you as a father. Was I a jerk? No. Was I sometimes like a father and I had to lay down the law? Yeah. But can you honestly deny that I was comforting, encouraging, and urging you towards a life of God? No. And you can see that by my actions, not just me telling you, like, that's what my heart was at. But I said it like a jerk. No, he's saying, like, if you think back to the way I talked, you can't come to any other conclusion, which is very powerful. And yeah, and too, like you and brought up, uh, you know, some people grew up with, you know, moms, dads, or different things. Some people grew up in broken situations, and uh, one of the ways God provides for people, again, whether they're still kids or grown up, is to have that pastor and other mature. Christian men as part of a congregation that become fatherly uh, to the people that are gathered. And again, that's uh, it's special, it's unique, it's beautiful, it's powerful uh, to know that, you know, the pastor is going to be that fatherly figure uh, for you, fatherly influence. Again, the encourager, comforter, but also the one that urges you uh, to things, confident that God working in your heart is going to bring you to that godly living. And so your father's going to say, you know, do this or do that uh, with the confidence that you can through Christ, uh, not to be a burden to you, uh, but to see the awesome power of God working in you. And he's going to work there with you because the more that you do live and embrace that, you know, his urging and encouragement to live that godly life, the world is going to push back on you. Uh, but that faithful pastor and faithful other uh, mature men in the congregation and the women too acting as, as mothers, like together, that's the beauty of the body of Christ and the gathering, which is the church, the Greek word for... For the church, right, or the, is the called out ones and uh, the gathered ones. And so, yeah, we get to do that. Awesome. Well, Gunnar, how about you close us out with prayer? We thank everybody for having this time with us. And uh, yeah, it makes me think we need a good prayer about being God's children. Amen. Now, through his representatives, he fatherly leads us but also just he himself constantly treating us as his own children that he loves and cares for so i'll let you take it close us out heavenly father you've provided all that we need uh, in being our creator our savior and uh, the spirit 
who lives in us. Forgive us for those times where the influence and suffering in this world overwhelms us uh, to the point where we separate ourselves from you or we uh, do not serve you and those you put around us faithfully. Forgive us for Jesus' sake and fill us with your spirit uh, that we would cling to you uh, as our dear Father and uh, provider of all good things, forgiveness and grace of future and also purpose in this world. And uh, be with us too then, uh, especially in the sufferings, uh, that it would not be things that overwhelm us to withhold the gospel, uh, but at that when we do suffer, it would be a reminder that the world certainly needs us to be bold in the grace and truth of Jesus. We pray all these things in your name because in your name we trust. Amen. Amen.